Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus. And I'm El Newbold. The chance to wrangle up snakes in Florida's Everglades this weekend has attracted nearly 700 participants. The Sunshine State is offering cash prizes in the month-long Python Challenge, which kicks off tomorrow. Spokeswoman for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, Carly Seglison, says the challenge is aimed at helping people to control the exploding population of non-native Burmese pythons, which have devastated Florida's ecosystem. Burmese pythons are not native to Florida, so these animals have been able to establish a breeding population in the Florida Everglades ecosystem. And because these animals not only compete with uh, native predators, but they also eat animals such as native birds and reptiles and small mammals. So they certainly have a detrimental impact on the ecosystem. Awards of up to $1,500 will be given to hunters who collect the largest and most pythons. Siegelson adds, in addition to the challenge, competitors will be trained on how to identify, handle, and harvest these large constrictors. The challenge will kick off this Saturday with a news conference and kickoff event, including some training opportunities at the University of Florida Fort Fort Lauderdale Research and Education Center in Davie, Florida. And the challenge will run through February 10th. On February 16th, we'll have an awards uh, ceremony and event, um, which will basically have a lot of educational displays for people to come out and learn about Burmese pythons and other native species or other non-native species in Florida. Siegelson says that although this is the very first ever python challenge, there are other chances for adrenaline junkies and snake lovers to put their hunting skills to the test. This is the first time for the python challenge, um, and we do have opportunities at other times during the year where folks can go out and hunt for Burmese python. Um, they would just need to check with the for the brochures, um, the rules for the wildlife management areas, and see Uh, when and where they can go out and and hunt those. Those who want to compete in the Python Challenge can register up to and including the final day of the competition, February 12th. The 28th Annual Everglades Coalition Conference is in full swing in in Coral Gables, Florida. It's a time for all those concerned about the future of the River of Grass to engage in discussions and regroup over restoration plans. As Florida Public Radio's Tramel Gomes reports, an unexpected guest made a surprise visit to Thursday night's opening recession. Hey, what are you doing here? I'm here. I'm surprised to see you here, too. During Thursday's reception, Governor Rick Scott shocked everyone in the crowd by showing up and doing a brief meet and greet. A spokesperson for Scott said due to a scheduling conflict, he was unable to attend the conference in person. But it just so happened that one of his non-public meetings was in or nearby the Biltmore Hotel, where the conference is being held. Scott says he's happy about the latest Everglades restoration deal to clean up water pollution, which he personally pitched in Washington. I'm really proud of the fact that we got a historic settlement done with the Everglades uh, restoration project. Uh, we're going to be funding that project uh, over the next 12 years. And we got a settlement done with Justice, Corps of Engineers, EPA, and Interior. Uh, so it's going to both increase the flow of water and it's going to increase the quality of water. Everglades Coalition Conference co-chair Don Sheriff says she was surprised by Scott's visit, but she's happy he made the effort. So certainly having him be able to stop by tonight and talk to uh, many of us that are working Everglades Restoration on the ground um, shows that his support is unwavering, and we're, we're happy to see that. 
But that support didn't always seem so unwavering. Scott broke long-standing tradition where, according to the Tampa Bay Times, since 1987, every time Florida has sworn in a new governor, one of his first public appearances has been to deliver a speech at the annual Everglades Coalition Conference. Scott didn't follow through, but Sheriff says his absence was understandable. He was able to join us last year and, mm-hmm. give, and provided a keynote address. Um, The first year of his office, it was actually the weekend of his inauguration. So there was a conflict in scheduling. He wasn't able to join us for that one. Um, And in addition to appearing tonight, he's also made a, a short vignette video that we'll be playing during the coalition conference. When it comes to the decades-long effort to restore the River of Grass, Everglades Foundation CEO Eric Eichenberg says he's not satisfied with where things are now. I don't think we'll ever be satisfied. I don't think we're ever going to see ultimate restoration uh, just based on the development within South Florida, Southwest Florida, the way the, the dikes and the levees and the canals that have been constructed. But we're, that's what, what we're doing is looking forward for restoration. Generation, this is a generational project. Eichenberg says it comes down to pushing for restoration projects and advocating for completion of those projects. On Friday, officials will highlight the C-111 Spreader Canal project. That canal serves to channel flood water away from western Miami-Dade County during the rainy wet season. Along a long list of state and local leaders who will be participating in the conference, U.S. Interior Secretary Ken Salazar will be delivering the conference keynote address tonight. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Tramel Gomes in Coral Gables. After taking public input, the Florida Park Service has re- released a draft plan for managing the Central Florida Silver Springs attraction as a state park. That's if the private manager gets out of its lease early. As Jessica Palumbo reports, the state will present its plan and gather input at a, mi- at a meeting on Monday. The state is suggesting it would manage Silver Springs as part of the adjoining Silver River State Park. Donald Forgione, who heads the park service, says the plan includes partnerships with private vendors who would provide things like kayak rentals, concerts, and running the water slide attraction that's already there. And we've been using the private sector, engaging with them for about 50 years. It it becomes a seamless part of our operation. Forgione says about 85 vendors currently work with the park system. The state has successfully managed transitions from private to public ownership at Wikiwachi and Rainbow Springs. He says if the state takes over at Silver Springs, it would focus on improving water quality there. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Bread of the Mighty Food Bank is adding a new item to its food supply list. Feeding America, the nation's largest domestic hunger relief charity in the nation, awarded the food bank a new van through its Hussman Foundation. Bread of the Mighty Food Bank Executive Director Marcia Conwell says with the new donation they received, they will be able to reach out to the needy and hungry more effectively. Well, because it's a smaller truck, um, we're able to get in and out of different places where we couldn't with our bigger vehicles. Um, we can uh, we do distribute to some of the high-rises here in town, and they don't need five or six, seven pallets of product. They just need a half a pallet or a pallet or two. So this works extremely well. We can take it uh, and deliver it to them without any problem. We can take it to some of the um, boys and girls clubs that also just need a pallet or so of product. So it's phenomenal. Conwell says they have seen a significant increase in the number of people needing food assistance compared to last year to the years prior and that those mostly affected are families. Oh, absolutely. This last year, the numbers are up over 80 percent. Conwell also adds maintaining these vehicles that help distribute food supplies to the needy is a challenge they face day to day. 
our biggest challenge is, is because we do have the vehicles and they were um, grants that we wrote and we were really blessed to be awarded these vehicles, we have to, they're very costly to keep on the road, very costly. It's $125 every day and we're on the road five, six days a week. So that's a big challenge is to, to keep the, the gas and the diesel in the vehicles and to be able to pay um, staff to help us get this job done. And yet that doesn't stop them from reaching out every day to those in need. Uh, usually Monday through Thursday, the trucks are picking up food and distributing. And uh, Friday, we've got a lot of people that come in and get it. And also Tuesdays and Thursdays are our biggest days where we do what we call mobile pantries. We load up the trucks and go into different areas, the rural areas, and bring food to the people that cannot get into a church or a pantry to get food. This move will add just another organization that the food bank works in partner with. Conwell says a great many nonprofits help the food bank in reaching their goal. We have 130 agencies that work with us. St. Francis House, Catholic Charities, Salvation Army, different YMCAs, the backpack programs. Um, we are the, the warehouse that gets the food, and then we partner with them to get it out. So with that many agencies on a daily basis, we have lots of people in the five-county area that help us feed the hungry. Conwell adds that there are a number of ways to feed the hungry. It doesn't always have to be canned food donations. Canned food, some people do food drives for us. Some people, um, a lot of people found out that for every dollar that they donate, we can provide seven meals. So a lot of people would rather just donate monetarily and let us find use our food sources. And some people want to do food drives. Some people... Um, want to come in and, and help us distribute the food. So there's many, many ways. Bread of the Mighty Food Bank has provided food assistance to the hungry in north-central Florida for over 20 years. They've distributed over 4 million pounds of food to thousands of people in counties such as Alachua, Dixie, and Levy counties. Welcome back. Chris Rainey had his first court appearance this morning after spending the night in the Alachua County Jail after slapping his girlfriend. He was not required to post bond and is not allowed to have contact with the victim. The incident has brought the discussion of domestic violence back into the forefront. I spoke with Teresa Beachy, the executive director of Peaceful Paths Center, about the issue of domestic violence and the support network that exists for victims in Gainesville. I think what we want to do here, too, is, is focus less on the fact that it's Chris Rainey. Um, which it's it's very unfortunate that, you know, he has found his way into the news again on this issue. Um, But more importantly, understand that this is the type of violence that goes on every day. And that, you know, because of his status and because of the privilege um, that he enjoys as a professional athlete, um, there's, you know, there's some titillation that occurs when someone you know, gets in trouble for something. But the reality is we have 2,000 arrests for domestic violence in Alachua County every year. And that's just a sad state of affairs. And the best that can happen when there's a high-profile case like this is that we continue to bring awareness to the fact that this goes on every day and that we as a society must stand up and say we're not going to tolerate it, regardless of how um, on the surface silly this particular incident might seem or 
trivial this particular text message might be. The reality is it's not happening in a vacuum. There's, there's other dynamics that are going on in that relationship that would foster a situation where these kinds of behaviors are probably acceptable on a daily basis to the individual that's doing them. And that's what we have to stop as a society. How does Gainesville fare in that regard with this issue? I mean, like, do we... Do we have a good support network here for that sort of thing? Gainesville actually and the surrounding communities have an excellent network, um, mm-hmm. not only in terms of the law enforcement response to domestic violence, but in particular we have a wonderful uh, collaborative community and a coordinated response to this issue where Peaceful Paths as the, as the center uh, obviously can provide a, a tremendous amount of support to victims. But we know that we can't work without the tremendous partnerships that we have with law enforcement, with the child welfare system, um, with the court system, in making sure that once victims are identified, they get services, but the batterers are also held accountable. How does one go about holding the um, batterers accountable? Because I know that there are, there have been issues in the past with holding the men in, the men or sometimes women involved in domestic abuse situations and domestic violence. Uh, what do we have here that helps out with that? How have we moved to make that not so underrepresented? I think in most jurisdictions, what we find today is that domestic violence is being seen as a much more um, critical area to address in terms of our law enforcement response and our judicial response. Uh, here in Gainesville, we have the lethality assessment program that our law enforcement officers uh, at the county level and through GPD engage in so that any time there is a domestic violence call, they're actually assessing the victim's safety. And that's a huge piece of it. Um, we also know that our state attorney, Bill Stravone, and the judicial system in general, um, but especially our family court judges, uh, really try hard to ensure that they're assessing the needs of victims and making sure that batterers are given the appropriate sentencing um, and charges are filed. Of course, we we could always do better. I think that that's something that you'll see across the board in every area of the country, um, because again, many times it's not uh, it's not the system that's the problem as much as it is the fact that society continues to see this as something that's not as big of a deal. And I think that in this particular situation, that's where we're at. Is that this is a an individual now who has been engaged in at least two offenses that we know of um, that resulted in criminal charges. And, you know, in the first case, it was kind of blown off and and not really addressed, uh, mainly because, you know, the victim said, well, I'm not really afraid. But we know that that's oftentimes what victims say, because truly, they really are afraid um, and are afraid of what the ramifications would be if the person isn't fully prosecuted, if the person doesn't go to jail and they continue to have access to them. So what advice do you have for someone who might find themselves self in a circumstance like what occurred yesterday where the girl had taken his phone and she and uh, he had hit her? Well, what we say in, in domestic violence advocacy is that there's absolutely no reason ever to respond with violence unless you're in defending yourself. And so, you know, our... our philosophy and kind of the ideas that we operate under are that all relationships should be based on respect and equality, not power and control. And the domestic violence dynamic really is about power and control in the relationship. And so when we talk to individuals who find themselves in situations where 
their partner is very jealous, uh, is very possessive of them, who uh, constantly needs to know where they are, who gives them rules now that they're in their relationship. Um, those are all red flags that could eventually turn into kind of that physical nature as well, so that if you don't comply, now there are physical consequences. There's physical punishment, um, much like you would think of in a parent-child relationship. Um, and so that kind of level of power and control is something that, you know, for us is just never acceptable in a relationship, regardless of how it's manifested. Um, that, that should never be part of it. Equality and respect should be the foundation of every healthy relationship. You're listening to the, or that was Executive Director of Peaceful Pad Center, Teresa Beachy. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus. And I'm El Newbold. The CDC is calling the current nationwide outbreak of the influenza virus an epidemic. In some areas where the flu season began early, the numbers of cases being reported are declining. However, dozens of states still report high levels of flu and flu-like activity. Today, the CDC released its flu numbers for the week ending on January 5th. And though no cases of the more dangerous H3N2 variant of the virus have been reported in Florida, Marion County Health Department spokesman Craig Ackerman says there have been flu-like illnesses reported in the county. So far this season, which we begin tracking in earnest in October, we have had 1,251 visits from influenza-like illnesses. Ackerman says in comparison to last year's flu season, this year may be quite difficult. Last year's flu season was fairly mild, so to see an increase this year is is not unexpected. However, there has been quite an increase, and the uh, increase in influenza-like illnesses reported at emergency rooms has started earlier this year, which it's looking like uh, an earlier peak to the flu season, which generally runs from January to February in our region anyway. But we could be looking at a fairly difficult flu season if these numbers continue to track this way. Ackerman says the number of people requesting to be vaccinated are up, especially with their program that is offered to kids and teens. At the Marion County Health Department, at children up through age 18 who are underinsured or uninsured or otherwise don't have medical coverage for flu vaccinations can get a free flu vaccine via the Vaccines for Children program, which is a state of Florida program. Ackerman says the flu vaccine can significantly reduce your chance of getting the flu, and it's available in Marion County today. The most important point is that the flu vaccine is widely available in Marion County and other areas through many locations, drugstores, retail outlets, and it's not too late to get the flu vaccine. The best way to prevent yourself from getting sick from the flu is to get the vaccine. But if you are sick, stay at home, and if you believe you have the flu, see your medical provider. And practice good hygiene. Wash your hands thoroughly and often, and supervise your children to make sure they do a good job when they wash their hands. After bids have been open for more than a month for those wanting to renovate the Alachua County Supervisor of Elections Office, Wednesday, they're finally off the table. Today, some locations are on the table for the local office. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Belinda Post has more. 
requests can no longer be sent in for the invitation to negotiate, the proposal opportunity for building owners, property management companies, or realty groups to put in a bid for the Alachua County Supervisor of Elections new office. The Supervisor of Elections office is seeking additional space and closed down the bid opportunity Wednesday. Alachua County Purchasing Manager Larry Sapp says there were six proposals in all. We, I think we have some good proposals that were submitted. We had a total of six groups that submitted. Caldwell Banker Commercial uh, submitted a proposal. We had a group, 5440 Group, Ken Properties, Boss Heart Realty, Synergy Design Build, and Saul Cyber Properties. The buildings proposed include the Heat Pipe Technology Building in the Airport Industrial Park, the Albertsons on Northwest 13th Street, Scotty's Heating and Air Building on Northwest 6th, Sticks and Stuff Building on Northwest 13th, the Ashley Furniture Building at 23rd and Main, and one group proposed to build a new building on Northwest 6th Street. Sapp says it will be a long process before a new location will be announced. The next thing we would do is is, uh, actually get a group together, look through the proposals to see what was submitted, see how well they fit our needs, not only space-wide, but, you know, how, how well they meet the, the uh, description of what we need as far as uh, buildability, whether they can be built out to, to house what we need need done. And once we look through those and then do some site visits and determine if if it will work for us, then the next stage would be to try to move into and negotiate a build-out of a certain area. Sapp says many factors will be considered, everything from the distance to bus routes to price negotiation. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Belinda Post. There are many charitable organizations around north-central Florida that help that try to help those in need. But as WUFTFM's Michael Higdon reports, a church in Gainesville is going beyond its local community duty and expanding its horizons. The First Assembly of God gives 51% of their earnings towards the international missions field. The church tries to make the missionary work sustainable, long-term, and reproducible in every country they visit. Andrea Levings, the creative assistant at First Assembly, says the main reason they go back, to Haiti in particular, is because each country wants to continue the partnership they have. We're doing water sanitation. What we've been doing is actually training up a group of individual Haitians who live in the community to test the water themselves. They've asked us to bring teachers and to help do like teacher training. Also, they're setting up their first, starting their first secondary school. Leving says that one of the big obstacles they encounter is figuring out whether it would be more helpful to send an entire team to a country or help in other ways like sending supplies or money. She adds that finding people to go on a trip who are flexible and going to partner with the people is important. We think that good intentions are enough. The other challenge is making sure that you're going to them and having like a partnership. And the partnership is to it. I'm going to learn from you. You're going to learn from me. Making sure that you're not going in and doing things that depower them or humiliate them or teach them to be dependent on us. Jillian Dinius, a microchurch leader, says she wishes that people who go on a missions trip could have a year in advance to prepare so they can really focus on specifics of what each country needs. I think a big misperception is that everything you're going to do is going to help them. When you get to the heart of it, if you're not trying to create something that's sustainable, if you're not you know, partnering and teaming up with people, locals who are doing that already, 
that a lot of the change that you think you're going to do isn't going to be carried through because there's no one there to help. Denia says a lot of the people were anxious to learn English, but it was sad because knowing once they left, there would be no one there to continue the teaching. The time limit was hard. Teaching English after was hard. I think whenever you go, you just always think that the problem is so big, and it's like, how can what we do make a difference? Denia says she was pleasantly surprised with the warmness they were welcomed with by the people in the community. It was really, really good to see the strength of the Haitian people, and it was really cool to go down there and see like young families smiling and laughing. So to see that in the midst of all the poverty was really, really encouraging. Leving says that First Assembly does everything they can to help, but they fall short all the time. She adds that they make mistakes but are growing and learning with everything they do. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Michael Higdon in Gainesville. This week, we've been bringing you the story of Fabian Jean, a, j- a dancer who lost her leg in the earthquake in Haiti three years ago. A prosthetic technician from Boston was moved by Fabian's story. He helped her get a prosthetic leg, and he hoped to help her recover in other ways, too, to start a business, to buy a house, to open a dance studio. None of these things came to pass. Last spring, Fabian was struggling to find money to take care of her family. In the final part of this series, Jacob Kushner from member station WLRN tells us where she is now. From the WLRN studios at the Miami Herald, I'm Alicia Zuckerman. All week, we've been bringing you the story of Fabian Jean, a dancer who lost her leg in the earthquake in Haiti three years ago. A man in Boston helped her get a prosthetic leg. He also hoped to help her start a business, buy a house, and open a dance studio. But none of these things came to pass. And last spring, Fabian was struggling to find money to take care of her family. Reporter Jacob Kushner tells us where she is now. It's a Friday afternoon, and Fabian Jean is on stage at Haiti's National Theater in downtown Port-au-Prince. Fabian steps, turns, and moves her arms in time with the other dancers. She's the only amputee. The other dancers go barefoot. Fabian's foot is covered with a white slipper. When the others jump, Fabian doesn't jump with them. Sometimes if there are moves I can't do, I just wait and watch. People will joke if I miss certain movements, but what can I do? Fabian had performed here years earlier, before she lost her leg in the earthquake, before the earthquake shut down the theater. Now, three years later, the theater is opening again, and Fabian has been asked to dance. At one point, Fabian lifts up her right pant leg all the way to where her prosthesis connects to her stump so she can move more freely. After three years, Fabian finally seems comfortable with her transformed body. When I dance, I don't feel any pain in my leg. It's right when I finish dancing that I feel pain. I take off the leg, let it rest, then I put it on again. The theater is paying Fabian $125 a month. She says it's not enough to even buy food each day and pay rent. Sometimes she can't afford the $1.25 to get to and from rehearsal. No. Sometimes I ask people to lend me money so I can get to rehearsal. I say, once I perform again, I'll pay them back. But if no one has any money to give me, I just stay home. When she can pay, the ride to the theater is grueling. The hour-long trip involves cramming into two different tap-taps, buses or pickup trucks that drive along routes through the city. 
Sometimes I ask the driver if there's room up front, since I'm handicapped. But if there's no room, I have to sit in the back. I ask people to make room for me so I can keep my legs straight. It's nothing like when Dennis used to pay for a private taxi to take me to rehearsal. But things aren't like that anymore. Fabian thinks a lot about Dennis Acton, the prosthetic specialist from Boston, who devoted so much time and money to helping her after the earthquake. After January 12th, I thought I'd never dance again. Then I met Dennis. He showed me a video of handicapped people dancing with fake legs. Dennis said I would dance again. But she hasn't forgotten all the other things Dennis said, that he'd help her buy a house and start her own dance studio. Those things never happened. A year ago, Fabian was disappointed and frustrated with Dennis. She gave up dancing for a while. But now that she's dancing again, Fabian says she no longer blames him. I don't have any problem with Dennis because he helped me come to the United States, visit Miami, visit Boston. He helped me rent a house. He sent me money to eat. Fabian's dreams have changed in the three years since the earthquake. She doesn't dream of starting her own dance school anymore. She hopes to come to the United States. She wants to go to dance school and perform with other dancers who are missing limbs. She says she thinks she could even become a famous dancer still. But it seems like a very distant dream. I don't feel recovered. Every day I think about January 12th. Every day I think about my leg. It's a year, a month, a date I can never forget. We've heard the expression that the United States is a melting pot, a nation of immigrants who have become part of the American experience. As WUFTFM's Liana Schicchetti reports, as the world has become connect- more connected across the globe, American college campuses are feeling the effects of this international movement. I have two proofs While traveling throughout the University of Florida's broad campus, it's almost impossible not to hear students, faculty, and visitors chatting. But it's not impossible to find that they may not be speaking English. According to a report by the Institute of International Education, the number of international students studying in the United States has increased, up 6% in the last year, to a record high of about 764,000 students. Some reasons cited for the increase include more active recruitment efforts and the growing reputation and visibility of U.S. campuses abroad. Deborah Anderson, UF's Director of International Student Services, says that as the numbers have jumped, her department has their hands full. We assign the students to an advisor based on the first letter of their last name. And currently I have six advisors, so that means they're doing about 1,000 students each which is unbelievable. According to the report, most international students in the U.S. come from China, and the statistics for Florida show no different. Of the nearly 32,500 international students in Florida, nearly 16% of them are Chinese. Anderson says that Chinese students make up the majority of the increase and that financial changes in China play a big part in encouraging them to study abroad. The Chinese government, they've developed what's called a China Scholarship Commission. And if institutions will provide some funding, then that commission will provide the additional whatever is necessary for the students. UF Public Relations graduate student Hao Quinn Wong is among that 16 percent. 
Wong hails from China, but she believes that the United States has the best education system and says that her search was motivated by the desire to attend a high-ranked school. For most Chinese students, when they choose their schools, they considering like the ranking is the most valued thing for all the students, I guess.、Uh, so I just picked up the national ranking of the university. The report also notes that the number of undergraduate international students surpassed their graduate peers for the first time in over a decade. Carla Mundim is an economics undergraduate student at UF from Brazil. She says that studying at UF has provided her with greater resources than she would have access to at home.、Uh, back in Brazil, it's really hard to get any research done, especially in the undergraduate level, which is very different from here. I think here people perceive you know, undergraduate as the place where you have to do research, and then we have to discover new things. With UF touting the most international students of any university in Florida, it's likely that traveling around the campus might be like traveling around the world. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Leanna Scacchetti in Gainesville. After two deaths from an apparent carbon monoxide poisoning in Lake City, I spoke with Alachua County Environmental Protection Department Director Chris Bird about carbon monoxide and why it's so dangerous. Carbon monoxide—it's actually a naturally occurring gas. It's it's tasteless, it's odorless. You can't see it, and when it causes problems for people, it's typically the result of what we call incomplete combustion of some kind of fossil fuel. But it's really—if、um, you have good combustion, you get carbon dioxide, which is also tasteless and odorless, but relatively harmless to people. The problem with carbon monoxide is that when it gets, when you inhale it, when a person inhales it,、um, it can actually、um, disrupt the the hemoglobin in in the, in the blood. And what it really does is it prevents oxygen from getting to body tissues or to the brain or to you know to vital organs. So, in a sense, what it really does is it's it's substituting and it's disrupting what would normally be the the the、um, Absorption of oxygen, you know, in the bloodstream to to the to the body tissue, and so you're you're really suffocating in a sense. If you have carbon monoxide poisoning, your your body is not getting the oxygen that it needs,、um, and so I think the you know in in Florida, for example, we've had issues, particularly during when when it's the winter and when it's starting to get cold and maybe somebody's moved into an, a, a house or an apartment and they've never used the heating system,、um, but the first time they turn it on, if that if that system, if it's an oil furnace or if it's some kind of a gas furnace that is using a fossil fuel, oil or natural gas, you, can, you if it's not properly maintained, it can produce excessive levels of carbon monoxide, and that can You know that can result in serious injury or even death.、Um, we we had back years a few years ago when we had a series of hurricanes, 2004. We had a bunch of people because their electricity went off at their house. They they went and they bought a generator, which you put in fuel and and it produces electricity like a home portable generator. And I remember we had a problem because some people didn't realize that you can't run one of those inside of your house. You don't even want to really run it in a in a garage,、um, any kind of confined space, because you're going to build up carbon monoxide levels. And so, you know, there's different sources of it. 
one of the sources is faulty equipment that's not properly maintained um, or tuned up, so to speak. But the other is even if it's properly operating equipment, if you're operating a combustion source within a confined space, then you can build up these carbon monoxide levels to, to lethal doses. For, for somebody that um, is moving into a, uh, a, a new house or apartment or, or a, a, you know, one that they, they aren't familiar with the heating system, um, if you have electric heating, it's probably not going to be an issue. But if your source of heating, for example, is natural gas or oil, and we, we still have, it, it typically is older homes um, may still actually have an oil furnace, um, another example is actually like a, a wood stove or a fireplace. That was Alachua County Environmental Protection Department Director Chris Bird about carbon monoxide. And thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Chip Scambus. And I'm El Newbold. Stay tuned for a news update from NPR and the WUFTFM news team. 